this is the place and this is the time. Here and now, God waits to break into our experience, to change our minds, to change our lives, to change our ways, to make us see the world and the whole of life in a new light, to fill us with hope, joy and certainty for the future. This is the place, as are all places, and this is the time, as are all times. Here and now, let us praise God. And let us do so as we join together in our opening hymn of worship, Lord of all hopefulness. And if you would like to and are able, you are invited to stand as we sing. We come now before God in prayer, and after I have led us in a short prayer, we will join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer, and you're invited to do that in whatever is your own first language, whichever version is the one you would use in your home church, if this is not your home church, and if for some reason you don't know it or are unsure, there will also be a version of it on the screen which you can follow if you would like to join in. So let's come to God in prayer, let's pray together. Great God, beyond all words, help us to shape our words to do you justice. In you, 
there is no conflict between power and tenderness. The birth pangs of creation are the way of your wisdom. Your love suffers crucifixion and is not defeated, restoring the world to life and hope. We do not deserve that hope which you have prepared for us. Measured by your ways, we get lost in the paths we choose. But you are ready to guide us and lead us onwards. Overawed by the vastness of the universe, perplexed and battered by the events of our lives, we turn to you and find you waiting to meet us in the smallness of each day, eternity in each present moment. Great God, we worship you through Jesus and your Spirit's gift, joining our voices as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. I wonder if anybody 
is ever asked by somebody to say, oh, would you just be an angel and do such and such? Anybody ever get that, that said to them? Or is it just me? Oh, Katrina. It must be a Katrina thing, mustn't it? Yeah. It's one of the, oh, and Margaret. Sorry, Margaret. Didn't see your hand going up. It's one of the things that my mum used to say to me when we were teenagers. Will you just be an angel and set the table? Or will you just be an angel and run down to the shops and buy whatever it was? Or sometimes if I did do something, she'd go, oh, you are an angel. And it was always kind of nice, really, to be told, told that, wasn't it? But really, we don't tend to think of angels as being like us, do we? What do we think of when we think of angels? Anybody got a picture in their head of what an angel's like? Wings, yeah, wings. So flying creatures, maybe, with big wings. Any other images of angels? Or times we think about angels? Sorry? Pure white. Pure white, thank you. So wings, white clothes, um, on the top of the Christmas tree, maybe? Any, who has an angel on the top of their Christmas tree or, or a fairy? Well, a few people have angels or fairies on. I think the fairies on the Christmas tree are probably derived from angels. We think of angels very often as white, uh, long white dresses with big wings, flying around, part of the Christmas story, um, which is interesting because actually that's a picture of the cherubs and the seraphs who are the kind of heavenly creatures rather than actually angels does anybody remember because we've done we've talked about this before but not recently uh, what angel actually means it's a greek word but it has a meaning in in english does anybody know what that word means thank you ian an angel is a messenger so an angel is somebody who goes and tells people things and um, we have another word a bit more for the greek scholars amongst us and it's no it's not just ian and me, who've done Greek. Ian's probably much better at Greek than me. Um, anybody know what evangel means? Or evangelism, translated into English. I don't mean what you think you do with it, but what the word means, translated into... Yep. Good news, thank you. So we got it from two sides, yep. Good news. So an evangelist is somebody who shares good news. That's all it means, is a messenger of good news. And I think we can all do that, can't we? We can all be an angel because we can all tell good news to people. What do you think might be some good news to say to people? It doesn't have to be churchy, it can be ordinary as well. But everybody's quite tired this morning, aren't you? You're all up late having fun, was that what it was? All partying, celebrating David's award, I think that's what it is. So what might be good news to tell people, do you think? Anybody? Get a tax refund, that would be good news, wouldn't it? Yeah, no one's come to me with that news, George, but if you'd like to tell me that one, I'd be really happy. Um, any other good news that you might want to tell somebody? Absolutely, yep. Somebody who's had medical tests might have good news that some tests are clear or benign. That would be great news. It's good news about David, that's exciting. Um, any other good news that you might want to tell people? You've passed your exams, absolutely. All sorts of really good news. I'll tell you what, it was good news for me when I got home at midnight on on Friday night and and saw my pussycats. That was good news. What might be good news that we want to share with people in church? Because that's actually, it sounds complicated, but it's really not so complicated. There's only, only one or two things we need to tell people that's good news. What do you think that might be? 
Absolutely. You see, I can go home now. God loves you. That is the whole gospel summed up in three words. So if you're going to be an angel, and I'm going to say to you, as my mum would say to me, be an angel. Just remember this, that God loves you. And that Jesus said, if we love each other, love our neighbours and love ourselves, then that's the whole gospel, which means good news, in a sentence. So do you think you can remember that? Be an angel then, don't you? And uh, just remember, God loves you, God loves me, God loves your neighbours, and God loves the whole world. We're going to sing a song that I found about angels. I haven't a clue what tune Paul's picked for it, but it'll be a great one. I'm sure. An angel brings a word from God and not an angel's views. A helping hand, a gift of food, good thinking or good news. Thanks, Paul. Another of the shorter books from the Bible, a letter from Jude. From Jude, servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called by God to live in the love of God, the Father and the the protection of Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace and love be yours in full measure. My dear friends, I was doing my best to write to you about the salvation we share in common when I felt the need of writing at once to encourage you you to fight 
on for the faith which once and for all God has given to his people. For some godless people have slipped in unnoticed among us, persons who distort the message about the grace of our God in order to excuse their immoral ways and to reject Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Long ago, the Scriptures predicted the condemnation they have received. For even though you know all this, I want to remind you of how the Lord once rescued the people of Israel from Egypt, but afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Remember the angels who did not stay within the limits of their proper authority, but abandoned their own dwelling place. They are bound with eternal chains in the darkness below, where God is keeping them for that great day on which they will be condemned. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah and the nearby towns whose people acted as those angels did and indulged in sexual immorality and perversion. They suffered the punishment of eternal fire as a plain warning to all. In the same way also, these people have visions which make them sin against their own bodies. They despise God's authority and insult the glorious beings above. Not even the chief angel Michael did this. In his quarrel with the devil, when they argued about who would have the body of Moses, Michael did not dare to condemn the devil with insulting words, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people attack with insults anything they do not understand. And those things that they, they know by instinct, like wild animals, are the very things that destroy them. How terrible for them. They have followed the way that Cain took. For the sake of money, they have given themselves over to the error that Balaam committed. They have rebelled as Korah rebelled, and like him, they are destroyed. With their shameless carousing, they are like dirty spots on your fellowship meals. They take care only of themselves. They are like clouds carried along by the wind, but bringing no rain. They are like trees that bear no fruit, even in autumn. Trees that have been pulled up by the roots and are completely dead. They are like wild waves of the sea, with their shameful deeds showing up like foam. They are like wandering stars, for whom God has reserved a place forever in the deepest darkness. It was Enoch, the seventh direct descendant from Adam, who long ago prophesied this against them. The Lord will come with many thousands of his holy angels to bring judgment on all, to condemn them all for the godless deeds they have performed and for all the terrible words that godless sinners have spoken against him. These people are always grumbling and blaming others. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others in order to get their own way. But remember, my friends, what you were told in the past by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, when the last days come, people will appear who will mock you, people who follow their own godless desires. These are people who cause divisions, who are controlled by their natural desires, 
who do not have the Spirit. But you, my friends, keep on building yourself up in your most sacred faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy to give you eternal life. Show mercy towards those who have doubts. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy mixed with fear, but hate their very clothes stained by their sinful lusts. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to bring you faultless and joyful before his glorious presence, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might and authority from all ages past and now and forever and ever. Amen. Jude, which we have just heard read for us, is the last and, quite frankly, the most difficult to preach on of the four little books of the Bible that we've explored in recent weeks. It's one of those where, as I sat down and read it, I thought, why the heck did I decide to preach on this? So let's just name that at the start, because you might be feeling a bit discomforted having heard it, as I was when I read it. We began with Philemon and explored how the Apostle Paul faced a challenge to hold together his theological ideal that in Christ all such distinctions and divisions such as race, status and gender have no meaning with the reality that he lived in a society in which all of them were hugely significant. How was he to address this complex situation of a slave, possibly a runaway, who he'd come to know and love and who had become a follower of Jesus, who would risk punishment and possibly execution if he returned home to his master. And as we pondered that short letter, we were left to ponder for ourselves how we would approach similar challenges in our own time, recognising that quick fixes and simple solutions rarely, if ever, work for complicated issues. And then, separated by a few weeks, we looked at the second and third letters of John, which we explored in the light of a widely accepted hypothesis relating to the Johannine churches, which were in and around Ephesus, 
that suggested they embraced a very broad range of theological opinion, adopting what was called a balanced Christology that would hold together at one extreme the humanity of Christ and at the other the divinity of Christ and tried to find a middle course whilst accepting within the church were some people who believed Jesus was fully and solely human and other people who believed he was fully and solely divine. And they wanted to hold that together. They wanted to be a diverse church. This is a hypothesis through which we read these, these books. Churches believed to be multi-ethnic in their composition and to have enjoyed the benefit of a diverse cultural milieu. But dissent was emerging. Some people were unhappy with this and would leave one local congregation and try to infiltrate another one. And heresy within these churches seems to have been identified not in the doctrine, but rather the attitudes and actions. The Christ command to love one another was meant to be the guiding principle of these churches, but it didn't always work out. And we noted that there were similarities in our own church that we tried to hold to, together a diverse range of theological understandings, that we are multicultural and multi-ethnic and rejoice in that. And so we were invited to reflect on the challenges that it gives us to live out the values that we claim. And then last week we met, at least by report, three men who were involved in these churches there was Gaius, a respected and well-loved leader who may well have been struggling to address the challenges of dealing with a particularly dominant character called Diotrephes. Diotrephes seems to have been quite orthodox in his theology, but what he lacked was love and accountability, and he was unilaterally expelling those who disagreed with him and he was being very inhospitable to the missionaries or messengers sent from other churches. Demetrius was commended for his good character, and this is where the scholars kind of go off into the realms of speculation, suggesting that he had been sent to support, encourage, or help Gaius in his work. And we took a little time to see if there were aspects of any or all of these men in our own characters and to specifically think who might need a little bit of encouragement or help and who might encourage or help us in our own walk as disciples of Christ. So that was all kind of okay. And then comes Jude, which is a strange book and frankly not a little terrifying. And it's only by taking time to explore the nature of the document and the likely audience that we can begin to make any sense of it at all. And even then, we have to dig pretty deeply to find the nuggets of hope or good news in what seems and is a very stern piece of writing. It's no surprise to me that this one doesn't make it into the lectionary, although the second letter of Peter, which some scholars believe is related to Jude, possibly sharing an external source, is included as part of some Advent schemes. And that actually will give us a clue as to what kind of book this really is. In English, the book is titled Jude, but it could equally well have been rendered as Judas or Judah, because that will be a more accurate rendering of the Jewish name that gives the book its title. 
Whether it's deliberate or otherwise, the translators, translators have led us away from anything that might draw our thoughts towards Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, or that might draw our thoughts towards Judah, the Jewish tribe and kingdom. And some commentators certainly suggest that just by changing the name to Jude, the church has tried to Christianize this document, which is actually a very, very Jewish text, and that's part of why it's difficult for us to understand. And the vocabulary used within the the original uh, Greek version of this suggests that the author was using a Hebrew version of the Jewish scriptures, which was unusual in those times because most people and the writers of the gospel and most of the letters were using the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So it's really significant that this book draws on a Hebrew translation of the scriptures and is a very Jewish text. So it was aimed at Jewish believers in Jesus, and that would have meant they were better able than us to make sense of it. The author is identified within the text as the brother of James, quite possibly the author of the letter of the same name, though we've got no way of proving that, and a servant of Christ. The scholars seem to spend an awful lot of energy working out who Jude and James are. And they mostly seem to end up suggesting that Jude and James are younger brothers of Jesus. Well, given that according to the Gospels, Jesus had a pretty stormy relationship with his mother and his siblings, perhaps that's not insignificant either. This is something that emerges from a family that, shall we say, was a little bit dysfunctional. And yet we have the story of Jesus and writings attributed to two of his brothers, James and Jude. That's interesting, I think. Although it's styled as a letter with opening greetings and a closing doxology, actually this book is more like a mini-sermon or a homily that's been written down or summarised and sent on to other people. The commentators I I read over the last couple of weeks referred to it as a midrash. Now, the problem with the word midrash is it's one of those words that sounds really clever and intelligent, but actually means different things to different people. So I had to go and find out what they meant by their use of midrash. And what they were doing was drawing on the fact that this is a text that pulls together different parts of the scriptures and some extra-canonical material, some non-scriptural material, puts them alongside each other, and then the author tries to find connections between them. That kind of appeals to me, because that's something I like to do with scripture too. And in this very short text, there are allusions to six Old Testament texts, or or scripture texts for Jews, one extra-biblical source, and to some later prophecies of which no extant record remains. So, as a piece of literature, it's quite interesting. But what's the point, frankly? The style and the content of this book lead to it being identified as apocalyptic. I didn't know that until I read the commentaries this week. And it suddenly makes sense as to why this is the last letter before the overtly apocalyptic revelation ends the New Testament. This is a kind of transition book between some pastoral letters and that weird book that is Revelation. And this one kind of bridges that. 
like other authors, the perceived imminence of Christ's return motivates Jude to warn those he loves about the risk of being found apostate, of having fallen away when that day comes. Some scholars see within this letter an implied antinomianism. I'm into big words today, aren't I? Antinomianism is basically a rejection of the Jewish law to such an extent that an extreme libertine viewpoint of life was going on. Basically, you could do what you like because you were saved. And frankly, we still see that in the church to this day. There is some similarity between this letter and the other three short letters in that the focus is not doctrine, but ethics. Not on what is believed, but how life is lived. And put bluntly, the kind of question that is being asked is if Jesus walked in tomorrow, what would he find? It's one of those questions I used to be asked as a teenager in the, in the Christian union. Now, if Jesus walked into your house tomorrow, what would he find? And you know what? Actually, it's not a bad question to contemplate from time to time. If Jesus visited us, I wonder what he would think. The trouble with this letter, though, is because it is very Jewish... It reflects a long-gone culture that's totally different from ours, and we risk misunderstanding what it says. We are conditioned by 2,000 years of Christian theology, by our own culture and context, and run the risk of reading into the text things it never said, whilst missing the possibility of hearing the new thing that God might have to say to us through it. At the heart of this letter are six types or examples that would have been commonplace and well understood by the readers of the letter. From their childhood steeped in the scriptures and hearing over and over these cautionary tales, they'd have immediately known what was meant. The trouble is, I could lay odds that many people here have never even heard of the sons of Korah, other than as a modern-day worship-singing group never mind what their crime is. And Balaam, we probably associate only with a talking donkey. So there are two extremes that we could fall into, and neither of them is very helpful. One is that we just ignore these things. We just go, oh, well, I don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. And therefore we miss what the writer is concerned about. And the other extreme, which is equally unhelpful, is to read them through a kind of Christian lens that is obsessed with one thing and one thing only, and that is sex and sexuality. And that's not what the point of these examples is either. What we have is a series of allusions to willful disobedience or arrogance on behalf of the people leading to disaster. Now, if you want to go and do the work yourself later properly, uh, you'll get more from it. But very briefly, this is what the six cautionary tales are about. When God led the people from Egypt, they persistently and willfully chose to go against God's instructions. You find that over and over if you read Exodus and Numbers. They come back to God, God blesses them, and then they go their own way again. And the result is that some of them were struck down there and then, And others, including Moses, failed to enter the land of the promise. Then comes a reference to angels, which is decidedly obscure. But it certainly has echoes of the mythic accounts of the Nephilim in the early part of Genesis. 
And it talks about angels overstepping the limits of their liberty or their authority. So you could have bad angels. And that's an interesting one on free will, I think, there, if we think about that for another day. The Sodom and Gomorrah story, which is the one that probably has us all twitching a bit, refers to the appalling attitude showed towards the men who were visiting Lot. Lot had welcomed these men, who are also identified as angels, into his home. And the people said, well, just bring them out, we want to rape them. And he says, no, no, you can have my daughters and rape them. Instead, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible story. It's not a story about human sexuality. It's a story about abuse of power. It's a story about violence towards the stranger, the total opposite of what the law demands. Cain is there as a prototype sinner. Cain takes umbrage when God rejects his sacrifice and then he goes out and murders his brother in a fit of pique. Balaam's crime is actually explicitly only identified in the book of Revelation. And this is that having gone and uh, not done what the King Balak, the enemy of Israel, had wanted to do, he sneaked back and told him how to undermine the Israelites by enticing them into sinful behaviour and then got to get cross with them. The sons of Korah were a group of schismatics from the priestly tribe who challenged the authority of Moses and Aaron and said, you know, it's not just down to you to a point. The, the priests, anybody can do that. So six stories which would have been very familiar to the readers of the letter, but to us are strange and not familiar. And so these six examples is a further legendary account of which there is no extant record to be found. Possibly it was something that was in first book of Enoch, which I have never seen. It refers to a dispute between Archangel Michael and the devil over the body of Moses. I don't know um, if anybody's familiar with the statue on the outside of the new Coventry Cathedral, St. Michael and the Devil. That is based on this particular legend. And the idea is that the devil wanted everybody to know where Moses' body was because then they could venerate Moses and not think about God. And Michael, acting on behalf of God, was saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And they have some mythical battle. So this is, again, it's, an argue, it's a thing about uh, who, who you put your trust in. They're strange tales, aren't they? Mythic, or at least mysterious and extreme in the imagery involved. And what we need to look for is, what is the point? And what I think is the point is all of these involve selfishness, aggression, impulsive and abusive Attitudes that lead to willful, cruel, or sinful behavior. And that's what the writer feared Jesus would find if he came to the church to which he wrote. And the sticky end that would arise naturally from this kind of behavior is what he wants them to avoid. And right at the heart of his concern is those he identifies as false teachers leaders who've lost sight of or corrupted the gospel values and have succumbed to the lure of power, status, money, or whatever it is, who are now influencing other people in ways that are unhealthy. And after his cautionary tales comes a set of metaphors to describe these false teachers who are leading people astray and exploiting their hospitality. 
people who were taking lots of money from the congregation and gorging themselves at the community love feasts, which were basically shared meals. And again, the images he employs would have been familiar to his right readers. They're rooted in the natural world and the kind of understanding of four elemental forces of the time. These false leaders are like clouds in the sky which carry the promise of refreshing rain but turn out to be empty. These leaders are like fruit trees in an orchard that ought to bear fruit in due season to nourish the body but they actually produce nothing. They're as good as dead. These leaders are like stormy waves on the sea, foam-tipped and wreaking havoc, overturning small vessels, destroying anything in their path and leaving terror in their wake. These leaders are like wandering stars, useless as navigational aids, and which, if followed, will lead the traveller wide of the mark, lost and alone. And of course, like any parable or metaphor, there is more to explore in those images than I have time to do today. For me, as somebody who is set aside as a leader within the church, I find these very challenging words, and and rightly so. If Jesus walked into our church, what would he find? To what extent am I guilty as charged of the faults and failings identified by the ancients, or those implied in the metaphors. But perhaps, though, we can hear the warnings collectively as an invitation to reflect on our life together, the values we espouse, the tensions we hold, the risks we take. It's tough stuff, isn't it? It is tough stuff. And if we take it seriously, we could be totally dispirited. So it's a good job that towards the end of the letter, the writer starts to build us up again. Twice in what are lumbered in the uh, English translation, verses 17 and 20, that little word, but, starts to give us a hinge from despair to hope. Each of these verses begins, but you, my friends, you, my friends, this is people that the writer loves. Despite everything, it's not all lost. We're still friends. We're still people worth knowing. And he offers some guidance to help keep them on track. Four things, says the writer, to be done. Hold on to the gospel foundation. Hold on to the good news of Jesus, the inspirer of our faith. Remember that God loves you. The gospel in a nutshell. Love God, love your neighbour as you love yourself. Keep on praying, knowing that God's spirit helps us to do so. Abide in the love of God. We talked about that a little bit recently, the abiding, the remaining, being rooted and grounded in the love that God has for us and for others. And keep hold of that hope that inspires us. The eschatological hope of a renewed creation in which justice and peace will find full expression. 
and which we try to live out and anticipate now. One of the things I find very striking is that Jude does not give up on those he, does, he views to be apostate. He doesn't write them off as beyond redemption. And although his words are quite stern, he requires that they be shown mercy in the hope that they will see the error of their ways and return to the fold. And I find that encouraging and helpful. A reminder that there is always a place to return within God's love, no matter what. And then he ends with a rather beautiful doxology, which I'm going to end with in a moment. This is the one bit of the book of Jude that I do hear quoted quite a lot. And like so much scripture, it's quoted out of context. But in the light of what Jude has said, in the light of his stern warnings, in the light of his cautionary tales, then it becomes also a blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to bring you faultless and joyful before his glorious presence, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might and authority from all ages past and now and forever and ever. Amen. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace.
now let us bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we give thanks for the happiness that we felt over these past days when we've enjoyed a prolonged spell of sunny weather. We give thanks for the opportunities to get outside and to enjoy our parks and gardens or trips to the seaside or the countryside. We give thanks for the beauty of the world shown up so clearly in sun-drenched vistas and crowded parks. And as the weather turns, perhaps, let us not forget those happy days. And we would also today remember the national celebrations for Her Majesty the Queen's 90th birthday. We give thanks for her faithfulness and for her example of devotion to duty all the years of her reign. May she continue to be blessed in the years to come. And yet, today, not all is felicity and joy. We live through times of change and political uncertainty. We cannot avoid being aware of the impending referendum on the 23rd of June. In our democracy, we've been exposed to the debates and broadcasts which have sought to inform our thinking as we ponder our decision on this very important matter. May we prayerfully consider our responses to the issues that whatever our own choice might be, it will have been made thoughtfully, sincerely seeking the greater good of all and not just our own personal interest or prejudice. We pray also that after the decision is known that its consequences will not lead to the breakdown of relations within families or within the nation or more extensively on the international horizons. Lord, this morning we would remember the wider world where many still live in appalling conditions, lacking food and shelter, medical services or employment. We think of refugees, those victims of civil war and of natural disaster. Bless those who work for solutions to these enormous problems and those who devote their lives and resources to the work of so many different agencies, not least Christian aid, to whom our congregation has recently made a generous contribution. We would pray for ourselves and ask for your help in the living of our lives. Help us, each one, as part of this worshipping community, to seek to follow you faithfully, to entrust ourselves to your guidance and protection, and to seek to be faithful witnesses to the God of whom we have learned through the Gospels, through the faithful preaching here of your word and through the nurture of our fellowship together, but above all, through the Holy Spirit infusing all of our lives each and every day. Amen.
Loving God, your generosity towards us is beyond our understanding or ability to express. Mindful of that question of what would Jesus find if he came into our church today, we offer you these gifts and with them ourselves, that each may be employed in being and speaking good news to a world that needs to hear the message of your love and redemption in Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is a new one on me, but hopefully one that has a good message for us to take with us as we leave from here. Go forth for God. Go to the world in peace. If you'd like to and are able, you're invited to stand as we sing. May the blessing of God, life giver, pain bearer, love maker, be with us and with those we love and those throughout the world, now and always. Mm -hmm.